you open your Bibles to Psalm 150? Psalm 150. So I read from the last chapter in the book of Psalms, and as we close our summer series through the Psalms, Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a mighty call You've given us here in Your Word. A call that should resound throughout our entire lives, not least of which here this morning. And so, Father, we pray and ask that as we meditate upon the goodness and and inspired word that you have given us to give you praise, that you would match it with the emotions and affections of our hearts. And that, indeed, as we continue to sing and to pray and to hear your word and to know about you, Father, that our lives would resound with praise to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Well, here we are. We've come to the end of our series through the Psalms. And I've just read what is the last chapter in the book of Psalms. And unless you were completely distracted or in some intense daydreaming through what I just read, you will have noticed that the main theme of this psalm is obviously that of Praise. It both begins and ends with the declarative shout, Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! Amen. It's almost sinful to read it like this. Praise the Lord. It shouldn't be done that way. I wonder though what you think of when you hear the word praise. Perhaps you think of what we've just done this morning in singing a few songs, praising God within the confines of the local church And on a local day, Sunday, maybe you think of praise music, the contemporary and oftentimes corny sort that's found on family-friendly radio stations. I wonder what you might answer when I ask the question, who ought to be doing this thing called praise? Who is it that is praising I think if we can answer that question, we can perhaps get a better handle on what praise actually is. Of course, Christians praise. That's what we're doing here this morning. And the object of our praise is God. But does it surprise you that the Bible also describes unbelievers as people who praise? Have you not read the love poems of a poet's love for his lover? The praise that he pours forth out of the ink of his pen. 
or the praise of a naturalist who looks for the first time upon the grandeur and beauty of the Grand Canyon. (gasps) What praise that steals his breath away. Or the praise of a man who loves the work that he does. Maybe an engineer, a mechanic, when a Camaro from 19, I don't know, comes in, I don't know my cars, and, and he says, wow, this is beautiful, and, and he quickly gets under the hood and starts working and gets dirty, and that's the praise of his life. Everybody praises. Praise is, technically speaking, to give an emotional response to something you love and you absolutely delight in. When you love it, and when you enjoy it, the natural response is some kind of praise. It looks different among different people, but it's there. Perhaps you've heard this before. I don't know if I've said this here before, but maybe you've heard the story of well, the man who, who comes home after work to his wife, and he knocks on the door, And there, the wife opens the door to see his husband standing with a bouquet of flowers. He gives it to her and says, here you are, my dear. I bought these because it's my duty. Wow. Slam the door shut. Try again, buddy. And so, next door is the better husband who comes home after work with a bouquet of flowers, maybe some chocolates, I don't know. And he knocks on the door and the wife opens up and he says, oh, My dear, my love, my complete adoration, these flowers are for you. No significant day. It's just because I love you. And guess what? I got a babysitter. We're going out tonight because I can't wait to spend the rest of my night praising you. The door remains open and they quickly steal off because she is enraptured with the adoration that he's given to his lover. Friends, that's praise. That's enjoyment. And everybody does it. Of course, praise has actually existed from eternity past. And I think the Bible argues will continue on into the eternal future. God has within himself exalted and given praise to himself from all eternity. This actually sounds perplexing when you hear that for the first time. But I think scriptures are clear. God demands us to worship him not because he needs our worship. It wasn't bored in eternity past saying, oh, what do I do now? No, from eternity past, he has been within his triune self, enjoying and giving delight and praise and glory to himself. That's what it means to be God. Now, God actually demands and commands us to worship him because he knows that there's nothing more enjoyable in all existence than him. That he alone is the sole object worthy of complete attention and adoration. And even more shocking to our modern ears, but nonetheless just as foundational, God's highest enjoyment is himself. Forever in eternity past, the Father praising and enjoying the Son, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit enjoying the Father and the Son. God is not in need of our worship and praise this morning. He's just invited us in to something way greater than we can ever dare imagine. You see, the reason mankind exists is to glorify and praise God and to enjoy Him forever. In your bulletins, you'll notice that the title of this sermon is The Meaning of Life. That's it. 
Precisely because God's existence is marked by God glorifying and enjoying Himself forever. You see, as you study the storyline of Scripture, you'll notice again and again that God acts throughout history, quote, for His name's sake. It's repeated everywhere. He does things for His name. He acts for His glory. Every decision He makes, it's for the exaltation and enjoyment of Himself. That is, all of redemptive history, every decision is done for His own glory. Thus, the Bible presents to us a God who, preeminent in His own affections, emotions, and love, is Himself. Of course, it's absolutely right for God to do that, because, well, He is that amazing. He's that glorious. And so when Scripture commands us to praise the Lord, when God commands us to give praise to Him, it's not this kind of weird self-centeredness that you and I are used to thinking about. When we're self-centered, it comes off as ugly, really weird. And you know why? Because we're not that cool and we're not that great. But that can never be true of God because God, as God, is radically God-centered. And so he ought to be because he is God commanding us to praise him. What would you say of a God if he deemed another being more worthy of praise than himself? When he gives the command, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Friends, God obeys his own command. He puts himself before all others. So in God's love and wisdom, he has created us and called us to praise him and enjoy him as he does himself. And this is good and right and loving. And so the text before us this morning brings before us the outworking of this truth in our lives. Because this is the last chapter in the book of Psalms, it it serves as a kind of obvious conclusion to a book about worship and praise, a climactic crescendo of praise to God's faithfulness. That last high note at the end of the orchestra. In fact, the last five psalms are all songs of direct praise. But only here in Psalm 150 do we see this kind of emphasis on loud praise. As as the author kind of brings together all these different instruments and every breath under heaven to join together in a final chorus of praise. The psalm actually answers Four main questions for us about praise. Four main questions. One, it tells us where to praise God. Secondly, it tells us why to praise God. Thirdly, how to praise God. And finally, who should praise God? Where, why, how, and who. And so that's what we'll focus mainly on this morning. Where are we instructed to give praise to the Lord? Look at verse 1. Verse 1 gives us the comprehensive answer. In his sanctuary and in the mighty heavens. The sanctuary of God, of course, was his holy temple in the Old Testament context. The place where God's presence dwelled and to where all of God's people were to approach and enter in order to worship God rightly. In one real sense, it was where heaven met earth. But we're also told to worship God in the heavens. And indeed, truth be told, unceasing worship is being offered to God in heaven. Our worship here this morning didn't 
begin worship in heaven as they said, oh, it's that time again. It's been happening nonstop, 24-7 in a place that's outside of time. And yet we've just entered in to worship that's always been going on. Worship by angels. Praise unending to God in heaven. And even as we've mentioned earlier, God is Trinity, is given over to ceaseless praise of Himself, which is right and good and logical. The Father loving and honoring the Son. The Son perfectly honoring and giving glory to the Father and the Spirit enjoying and delighting in both God, the Father, and the Son. In heaven, and even within God Himself, glorious praise is constant. Verse 1 is actually calling us to praise God both in heaven and on earth. Praise is to be given, in other words, everywhere. This becomes more pronounced... I think, when we realize that since the coming of Christ, the temple, the the Old Testament sanctuary of God, has actually been done away with. The New Testament is clear. Jesus Christ is the new and better temple. He says that in John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. And so all who trust and believe in Him, who are found in Him as believer, well, the New Testament now describes us as the temple of God. We are his temple. In other words, God doesn't dwell in a a special sacred space like he did geographically in the Old Testament. Since the coming of Christ, God now dwells within the hearts of true Christians. So that when we're being told to praise God in his sanctuary, this isn't here what God has in mind. In fact, strictly speaking, this is not a sanctuary. It's, it's not a proper place for which we can only approach God here in this room. We can praise God down in the basement, as we've done before. We can praise God out in the parking lot, which may happen. We can praise God at work, in our homes, which ought to be done, in the car, when you're playing, when you're eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You get the point. Praise happens everywhere throughout our entire lives if God dwells within us richly. The proper praise of God in one real sense takes place everywhere, our entire lives, so that broadly speaking, giving praise means the same thing as living our life to glory of God. This is why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Every aspect of your day should be spent in the praising and giving glory to God. I wonder, do you think about worship like that? Or do you think that the only thing God wants from you is for you to be here for a few hours on Sunday morning? Everything else is kind of free game. I'll tell you, if your Christian life consists of being a Christian for a few hours on Sunday morning... Friend, the Bible holds no hope for you that you're actually a Christian. You're religious, we'll give you that. But so are millions of other people around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, the prophet Isaiah tells us bluntly and plainly that in God's eyes, all our religion is nothing more than just filthy rags. It's odious, disgusting to him. So let me encourage you, if you've lived your life by just kind of adding church on to the end of your week, repent. Come to Christ and and actually submit your entire life to Christ who is King, Lord of Lords. And as He, by the Spirit, now dwells within your heart, 
I think you'll notice something. You'll notice a change in your own being. That every aspect of your life now comes under the sway of Jesus Christ. So that what you once enjoyed, now in light of Christ, huh, I wonder if I ought to be sleeping with that person who's not my spouse. I wonder if I ought to be taking a little here and a little there. Everything now comes underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ when he dwells in your heart. In fact, your heart, your life, which is now a living sanctuary of God, this is where you're supposed to praise the Lord. Everywhere you place your foot. And just a side note, that doesn't mean that coming to worship here together like we're doing this morning, uh, Uh, as Christians should do, that doesn't mean that that doesn't matter, right? It it does. The New Testament is clear that we're not to neglect gathering together to worship God on the Lord's day and, and singing and praying together, the reading and preaching of Scripture, and in taking communion together. That's a non negotiable, according to the Bible. But so is living out your life in Christ likeness out in the world. That's a non negotiable. Here on Sunday mornings, what the New Testament calls the Lord's Day, we are the church gathered. Every other day of the week, we become the church scattered, being a witness to our individual lives, to the majesty and goodness of God. We praise God together, and then as we scatter, we praise God individually. If verse 1 has thus told us where to praise God, well, now verse 2 answers for us the question, why? Why should I praise God? This is perhaps one of the most important questions you could ever ask. Why? If Joe Schmo walked in off the street and began calling everyone to give praise to him, Hello, I'm Joe. Look at me and praise me. It'd be absurd and weird, and we'd say, No, Joe, please leave. You're not anything special. And so the question actually makes sense. Why should I praise you? God, why should I praise you? In fact, answering that question gives real fuel to real praise. Verse 2 tells us that we're to praise God because of His mighty deeds and according to His excellent greatness. These are two broad theological categories that sort of encompass everything about God. His mighty deeds or His acts of power are referring to things like His works of creation. How in just six days He created from the breath of His words Everything that exists. He spoke life into existence. And continues by his word to sustain everything that is. God is mightily enabling every single breath each and every one of us are taking right now. He's allowing it in his mighty goodness. God is holding the sun and the moon in its place right now. In his mighty goodness. Of course, God's mighty deeds also refer to his sovereign providence. In the, in the sense that nothing happens outside of God's mighty control. That every grain of sand in the Sahara Desert is being blown exactly where God designs it to be. Every wave that crashes against the rock, every particle of water falls exactly where the Lord wants it to be. That there's not one atom in all existence acting contrary to the sovereign will and providence of God. 
Psalm 115 verse 3 tells us, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And so that's what it means to be God. The prophet Jeremiah, writing in the book of Lamentations, he's meditating there on the extreme suffering and, and evil that's been done to him and his people. And yet in chapter 3, verse 27, 28, he consoles his own heart by asking the obvious question, Who has spoken and it has come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Friends, even the calamities of life are under God's control. And so that there's not one instance where God says, Whoops, I didn't see that coming. No, He knows. And the highest expression of that is the worst evil ever done against His Son, Jesus Christ, when the Son of God was murdered on a cross. And yet God planned that from before the foundation of the world and used it to bring about the greatest good that has ever been our salvation. God is sovereign. Of course, preeminently, God's mighty deeds refers to His bringing about our salvation in Christ. That God in His might and wisdom and sovereignty has not let sin get the last word. God won't be beat. And He won't let death run amok. Decay will not end the world that He's begun in goodness. In Christ, God has mightily reversed the curse and brought about a redemption where life and praise and enjoyment of God will last for eternity in heaven. Friends, have you considered lately the mighty deeds of God? Because if you are, and you're thinking and meditating upon them, no right-thinking person can be left unmoved. We should be led to real, heartfelt praise. This is our God. When we praise God according to His excellent greatness, the psalm is also including in this phrase all of God's attributes. His holiness, His beauty, His goodness, His omniscience and omnipresence, His justice, His wisdom, His love which is unending, His grace which is unending, His compassion, His truth, His unchangeable immutability that nothing changes about Him, His eternality, and His perfect glory. Friends, have you ever wondered why heaven is for eternity? It's because it'll take an eternity to enjoy the fullness and greatness of God, which is to say the ability, our ability to delight in Him can never be exhausted. When we've been there for 100 billion years, we have only just scratched the surface of seeing how awesome and amazing and beautiful our God is. Does this not lead us to praise? Of course, this kind of presupposes that you're beginning to know God, right? You might ask, well, how do I know God? I know this concept of God, but how do you know Him? Well, he's kind of written a perfect love letter describing who He is for us, right here in the Bible. The Bible is ultimately about Him. And it's not ultimately about us. We're included in his story. But if you want to get to know God, open this up, read it. I guarantee you, you'll see some amazing things. And so it's ultimately here where we come to know him. And, and, and we're enabled here to praise him because we're given insight into who he is. All right. We've seen where to praise God. Uh, we've seen why we're to praise God. He's mightier, more excellent than we could ever dare imagine. But now the psalmist gives quite some space to answering the question, how should we praise God? 
And he answers it here for us in verses 3, 4, and 5. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. In other words, it seems to me that he's saying, praise God with everything you've got. Have you a trumpet? Get it. Use it. How about a tambourine? Yep, that's a good noise. Let's do it. Make it crash and resound. Worship of God needs to be loud and mighty. It's interesting that each line here is actually represented by a different type of person in ancient Israel. So so that the psalmist isn't actually focusing on the instrument per se, so much as he's he's talking about getting all the people involved. The trumpet is actually the the shofar, which is a ram's horn. I had a Hebrew professor who, who began every class by blowing it. And the whole school would kind of get notice of this, this loud ram's horn. But this, this shofar was, was used by the priests in ancient Israel. The next line mentions the lute and the harp, which were instruments played by, by other Levites. Then there's the tambourine, which were actually probably bells connected to the clothes of women when they danced. That's why the tambourine and dancing is connected in verse 4. Thus, what the psalmist, I think, is saying here is that, that giving praise to God is something that's not just for a few special individuals here and there. No, everyone is to be involved. Get the priests, get the Levites and the other people, get the women involved. All people are to praise God. It's interesting to me that in verses 3 through 5, we have a list of instruments to be used, but I don't know if you've noticed, there's no real mention of words. No description of singing. I think this is easily resolved by looking at just the psalm before it, what I read this morning, Psalm 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. That's actually commanded throughout the psalms to sing songs. And in Revelation, we're told to sing a new song unto the Lord. We're told to praise God with our lips to use words to verbally rehearse the mighty deeds of God. And so here in Psalm 150, we have the final call to kind of gather all that we can in accompaniment to our verbal singing of God. Yes, sing the good, rich theology of the Lord. And you know what? Make it beautiful and loud with the instruments coming behind it. Now, all the instruments described here were the usual instruments used in the temple worship of God in Israel. And just a side note, It is interesting that in the New Testament, there's no mention of instruments in praising God, except for in Revelation, where these same instruments are repeated again, uh, the horn and the tambourine. But what is emphasized is, is a focus on singing the rich theology. That doesn't say that it's bad, but it does say that that our focus in worshiping God is on the subject matter of who we're worshiping, God himself. But nonetheless, All these instruments described in Psalm 50 have significance in Israel's redemptive history. So, for instance, trumpets or the the ram's horn would have immediately brought to mind Genesis 22, where, where God brought a ram stuck in the thicket to be a sacrifice to God instead of Isaac, of whom Abraham was about to sacrifice. And so the ram's horn represented and, and brought to memory God's salvation. The ram's horn is also what was used to lead the Jews in battle throughout the book of Joshua. Circle 
around the city seven times, and on the seventh day, blow the ram's horn. And the city fell down, and they took victory. It was the ram's horn which was also used as the call to worship, to gather the people together up Mount Zion. Interestingly, it's probably the ram's horn that Paul has in mind in Second Thessalonians when he says that Christ's return and the rapture of the church will be marked by the loud sounding of a trumpet. So God is calling his people to himself to unending worship by the ram's horn. The stringed instruments were the instruments used to dedicate the building of the temple and the presence of the glory of God in the land of Israel. Uh, moreover, when major prophecies were given, you always see a connection with stringed instruments being, being played. So, so, so the, the, the stringed instruments, the harp, uh, was always there to symbolize kind of God's presence among the people and God speaking and communicating, giving revelation to his people. The tambourine and other kind of percussion instruments was always used in the Old Testament in connection with joy, celebrating great victories of God over his enemies. Thus, the dancing connected here is nothing more, I think, than an expression of of godly joy. It doesn't mean what maybe some of us think about dancing today. It's not like couples dancing together or probably, uh, it's definitely not the immoral dancing so prominent among younger folks today. Uh, No, throughout Scripture, it's kind of an individual dancing, an expression to how good God is. Connected with dancing is always the opposite or the contrast, which is mourning and pouring ash upon your body and and wearing sackcloth. So so whereas mourning and sitting in the ash is, is, is sorrow, dancing is always connected with joy. Thank you, God, for what you've done. I think that's true for me. Uh, I can't help, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but when I'm really singing the words that we, we sing in the morning, I, I kind of rock heavily on my feet. And that, that's kind of me just breaking out in a dancing praise to God. I think God delights in that. Uh, I delight in that. But it ought to be said here that there's no example or instruction of corporate dancing among God's people in the Old Testament. Right? So there's no instruction God ever gives to say the whole church should dance together uh, in a kind of synchronized corporate dance and praise to God. In fact, every example we have is of individual dancing. And even more strikingly, the only example of corporate dancing together is when they build the golden calf and they're all dancing together and worship to the false idol. And God says, what are you doing? That's bad. So, we know of that. We know of David dancing before the Lord as an expression of his joy, uh, and the Lord was pleased with it there. Um, but God was also delighted and pleased with maybe the older folks who couldn't quite dance and were just singing praises to God. Here's the point. Is your worship of God marked by a true delight in God? really expressing a joy in who God is and what he's done. Praising God with all your might and full enjoyment. And do you get to the end of Sunday afternoon and say, you know what, my, my abs hurt from singing so loudly. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit tired uh, because of the, the, the might I gave in to praising God and enjoyment of him. It should hurt a little bit in a good way. This leads us to the last question being asked. Who should praise God? Verse 6. Let everything that has breath 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Answer, everything and everyone. Do you know, even if you're here as someone who doesn't quite believe in God, you are still called to praise Him? It's because, you know, whether you believe in Him or not, He still exists. And he still demands you to focus and put your adoration and worship to him, worship which he deserves. You may not feel like it. In fact, you may downright hate the idea of praising God. And that actually makes sense. The Bible tells us that the natural bent of all people doesn't want to go to God. It's weird. For honest, what we're doing here this morning is weird. The rest of the world is getting ready for the games and enjoying their Sunday morning sleeping in. And here we are, singing together and listening to a text 2,000 years old and enjoying it. The natural man doesn't desire God, and no one on their own accord seeks after God. To all sinners, nothing is more revolting than the idea of praising God. And yet, do you not know that this is why God sent His Son to die for you? Because the truth is, God's love for you is so God-centered. In other words, God enjoys Himself and praises Himself so much that He was willing to curse His very own Son so that we who hated God might actually be brought to love God. God was not content to leave us alone in the enjoyment of our own sinful navel-gazing. We hate God because we think we're God. We desire the praise for ourselves. We want what we want. I'm the captain of my own ship. I determine my own life. And yet God is loving precisely because God knows that He is God. And that He alone deserves praise. And so He calls us to Himself in Jesus Christ. He calls out, let everything that has breath praise me. Look at me and see, He says. Because everything else will fade to nothing as you get your first real glimpse of me. Do you know who Jesus delighted in preeminently? What was Jesus' sole emotional desire? His Father. That's uh, true throughout the Gospels. And this is why Jesus tells us he came to save sinners in John 15, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He wants us to know the joy that He knows, a full joy of God, the Father. He's saying, you have no idea what you're not praising right now. And in fact, I'm going to die for you so that you can taste how good and enjoy how amazing my Father is. This is again why He prays in John 17 that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, Father, Jesus prays, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, indeed, they don't even want to know you. I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He wants us to love God, praise God, 
enjoy God. Because as the Son of God, He knows preeminently who God is. And He's inviting us into that triunal glorious praise. You know, this is exactly what will happen too, according to the Bible. One day when Christ returns, Philippians 2.10 says, Every knee will bow, whether willingly or not. John tells us in Revelation that he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth singing praise to him who sits on the, ro- on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I was talking to somebody earlier this week about heaven and about God. And they answered with what is actually quite a common answer. That sounds so awfully boring. To which my response was, yes, a normal cultural view of God where we kind of sit on clouds and play harps and sing to a light is boring. But that's not what the Bible talks about heaven being. It talks about heaven being the new heavens and the new earth where praise is unceasing and because at the center of the new heavens and the new earth is God himself where we get to taste and see and enjoy his beauty and live out life and praise to Him so that it's an ever-increase of joy and delight. We're doing things. We're writing new poems to Him every day. We're exploring the new heavens and earth in delight and worship to Him. All as we get to know Him more and more and more. It ceases to be something that's boring. I'd rather go to hell if heaven's going to be boring. And something that becomes better than we ever dare imagine. The truth is that one day everyone will give praise to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ now is that we can bow our knees in humility and join Him in praise. Or in judgment, Christ will come and bow the knee for you. And you will praise, but you will praise out of a cry of fear for the judgment you deserve. Friends, trust in Christ now. And know Him as good and loving to you now. As I end and we end, I want to recall to us where we began earlier in the, psalm, in, in the summer in Psalm 1. Psalm 150 and Psalm 1 kind of begin and end the book of Psalms in a similar fashion. We're called here at the end to resound in, in, in high emotional praise and worship to our God. But Psalm 1 called us to worship by telling us, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his word he meditates day and night. There's an emotional factor from beginning to end. Delighting in what we see here, which leads us to delight in who he is everywhere. Friends, my encouragement to us this morning is that we can rightly enjoy God in and through Christ by getting to know Christ in his perfect and inspired word. Oh, that we would continue to do that and give ourselves privately in worship and praise to God as we open up his word and get to know him. Indeed, may we live the rest of our lives praising the Lord, praising the Lord. Let's pray.